Good morning. We, uh, we've been talking about being thankful for the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ in preparation for Thanksgiving. And we had this nice, beautiful table set up behind me to kind of remind us. And then we said, why not, why not just put it forward and actually preach behind the table as a good reminder, thinking about all of the spiritual blessings that we have. And so we started two weeks ago looking at the spiritual blessing of victory, spiritual victory in Christ. And that was sort of right up into Halloween where the world sort of kind of looks at spiritual things and thinks about the dead and the supernatural and so forth. And we looked at Christ uh, binding the strong man and how he has complete control to loot anything he wants from him because he's the stronger man. Um, so then last week was right again on the heels of our annual meeting for our denomination. We had people, pastors, and representatives from all these different churches. And so last week we looked at the spiritual blessing of the local church. Um, that's one of the gifts that God gives us. And obviously the fact that you're sitting here this morning means you recognize it to be a blessing and a gift uh, that God gives to his people. Well, here we are as we're approaching Veterans Day. We're going to look at being thankful for the gift of spiritual freedom. Spiritual freedom. And uh, friends, we do have so much to be thankful for. Uh, even as we think about Veterans Day, um, I come from a, somewhat of a military household. Uh, I was never in the military myself, but my father was in the military. My older brother was in the military. Uh, my father-in-law, 21 years, retired Coast Guard officer. Uh, my sister-in-law is still currently serving in the reserves as an Air Force officer. And uh, who am I missing? So we have a, a number of people from a military family. And recognizing the idea that those who serve our military have, in many ways, have, have sacrificed their time, uh, time with their families, and much of their lives uh, to serve us, to protect the freedoms that we enjoy. And when you think about what freedoms are we talking about, we're talking about things like the freedom of speech, uh, the freedom of assembly, but most importantly, the freedom of religion, uh, that we could sit here today uh, and worship openly with no fear of persecution. Oh, what an awesome thing that is. But I want to talk about another sort of freedom that we have. Uh, even better, really, than religious freedom. And that is spiritual freedom. That Christ has set us free. And, and the great thing about spiritual freedom, friends, is nobody could take it away. <laughs> uh, no army could remove it from us. It comes from Christ and it's ours permanently. In fact, if you look around the world, there are places where people have no religious freedom whatsoever, and yet they're spiritually free. Uh, some of the places where there is the greatest amount of persecution for religion. Uh, think of Iraq and Iran and North Korea and China. People there, Christians there, meet with a sense of joy and freedom that they have that comes from Christ. Uh, when I look around my, my, uh, my office, I, you know, I, when you talk to a pastor, someone who's been a pastor for like 30 years, 40 years, and their office is filled with a bunch of knickknacks that they've, they've sort of collected over the years. I love that. So I'm, I'm on the early end of that. But one of my favorite knickknacks in my office right now is a, a little, uh, little square here. Uh, so that, if you don't know what that is, you may remember for a while this became really popular. But that is the Arabic noon. The Arabic N. <laughs> and uh, what it was is because in Iraq, for a while... Uh, they persecuted the Christians there, and they would write this letter on the door of Iraqi Christians as a way of singling them out for persecution. Uh, and the N stands for Nazarene, uh, follow, followers of Jesus the Nazarene. 
And so I bought this actually from a, a man who works with Iraqi refugee Christians who are making these. And it's a way of sort of supporting themselves. They sell them to us Westerners. So one of my favorite little things. But here you got these people in Iraq who have no religious freedom whatsoever, persecuted for their faith. And what? They are spiritually free in Christ. And it's a freedom that no one can take from them because they have it in Christ. And even if they lose their lives, they have it forever. I want us to look at Galatians chapter 5, 1 to 15, looking at this spiritual freedom that we've been given. As we think about the feast of blessings that God has set up for us, we're going to look at this blessing of spiritual freedom. And I really no better place to look in the Bible than the book of Galatians, which talks about how we're free in Christ. 5, 1 through 15, it'll be on the screen behind me. Or you can open up your Bibles if you'd like. Or turn on your phones to open up the app that says, you know, the Bible app. But this is what he says here. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith Working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish they would, those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. You've given the gift of spiritual freedom. There's an outline in your bulletin. As always, if you'd like to see where we're going, but verses 1 through 6, we stand firm in this spiritual freedom that we have in Christ. 7 through 12, be careful of that which would take away your freedom. And then finally, in 13 to 15, use your freedom to love and to serve one another. So first, look at verses 1 through 6. Stand firm in the spiritual freedom that we've been given. Look at verse 1. He says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Uh, I love that sentence. It sounds sort of repetitive. It sounds redundant. But what he's saying is, why did Christ set us free? Why did he give us this spiritual freedom? And the answer is, so that you could be free. <laughs> That's the end in itself. He wants us as his children to be, God wants us as his children to be free. Spiritually free in him. Uh, to live freely in love with him and in service to others. It says here, uh, stand firm in that freedom. Uh, don't be again submitted to a yoke of slavery. Uh, so nothing can take away this freedom that we have in Christ. But even a free person can start acting like a slave. 
uh, they can act as if they're still under the yoke of slavery. He's saying, don't do that. Why would you do that? You have freedom. Stand firm in that. Verse 2, he says, look, I, Paul, say to you, if you accept circumcision, Christ has no advantage to you. And you probably heard that and said, if you're not familiar with the scriptures, what is he talking about? <laughs> is, does circumcision mean what I think it means? And yes, it does. Uh, it's, but you have to understand sort of the background here. Circumcision was something that actually God commanded to Israel, to the Jews, as a sign of their covenant. And what it meant is you are in a covenant relationship with God and therefore obligated to obey the commands of the Torah. All of the ceremonies of the Torah, all the food laws and everything else. So if you're circumcised, you're under the covenant. And if you're under the covenant, you're obligated to obey all of the commands and ceremonies of the law. And what was happening, and in fact, the way it worked is if you were a Gentile, and you, and this happened often in sort of Christian, pre-Christian days, and you were sort of drawn to the God of Israel, drawn to the fact that these pagan gods, they don't seem right. They're not the real deal. But the idea of this one true and living God who is unseen and unrepresented by idols and is the creator of all and made all things good and man has fallen into sin and he's redeeming us. If you're sort of drawn to that, uh, you can... Worship God, certainly. And you'd be considered what's called a, a God-fearer. There's a lot of them. There's Romans, Greeks, and, and others who were considered God-fearers, which is a technical term. They're, they were drawn into this idea that the Jews are right about who they worship as God. But you weren't really considered truly Jewish or a, a truly a convert until you made this big step of getting circumcised, <laughs> which for a man is a pretty big deal. But more than that, by getting circumcised, what you're saying is, I'm obeying all of the Torah now. Uh, I'm, I'm responsible for all the food laws and everything. So it's not that so much that circumcision in and of itself is the big deal. It's what it stands for. It means I need the law now in order to be saved, in order to have this continue this relationship with God. Look what he says in verse 3. He says, I testify to every man who accepts circumcision, he's obligated to keep the whole law. So you Galatian Christians who have been saved by Christ... You are saying, I need to get circumcised in order to continue this relationship with God. If you're going to go down that path, you've got to obey the whole law. The whole thing, including all of the food ceremonies and everything else to maintain your relationship. And he says, verse 4, you've been severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you've fallen away from grace. A lot of people have used that term, fallen from grace, to mean they've lost their salvation. Uh, As if you could have salvation in Christ and then lose it. Uh, that is foreign to what he's talking about. That's just not even the idea. It's just to misunderstand the very argument he's saying. He's saying you were saved by grace. You've enjoyed grace. That's what's brought you into a right relationship with God. And now by turning to the law, you're falling from that. You're going the wrong direction. Uh, Now you're depending on the law in order to save you, which could never save anyone. It always took grace. Now the point is don't fall from grace. Go back to now trusting in grace to save you. Verse 5, through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. So in Christ, we're righteous, but really are still sort of waiting for that declaration. Uh, in Christ, we're not righteous by our actions, we're righteous by our standing. Uh, those who've been justified, declared righteous by God. But that's not clear to us today, and we can't see it with our own eyes. But we're waiting with hope for that day when we'll stand before God, and Christ will be our righteousness. 
And God will declare us righteous because of our faith. That's the hope of righteousness for which we wait. And look what he says in verse 6. Interestingly enough, for in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. Circumcision has no ability to draw you closer to God. What matters is faith. And faith always expresses itself through love. Now, the point here, of course, is not that if you've been circumcised, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but if you men have been circumcised, that you are, can't be a Christian, or vice versa. Uh, his point has nothing to do with that. If you did it for medical reasons or for whatever, social reasons or anything like that, his point is if you are depending upon that religious ceremony as a way of saving you, then you need to obey the whole law, which is impossible. Now, remember your freedom. That's his point. Now, what does it mean to be spiritually free? Uh, we, we keep saying that Christ has made us spiritually free. What does that mean? How, how are we spiritually free? Well, one, we're, we're spiritually free from sin. Uh, we're, we're, we're free from the guilt of sin and its damning power in our lives. Free of it. We, we don't have to live in this constant fear that God is going to take our sin and he's going to judge us by it. And that we're going to end up forever in hell. We don't have to live in that fear we're free from sin. But not only that, we're free from sin's power. <laughs> Before, we were sort of trapped in sin. Don't get me wrong, we still struggle with sin. We're still tempted by sin. We still sin at times. But its power has been defeated. You can now overcome sin in your lives. God has given us the power to now overcome the power of sin. We're also free from the law. Uh, we're, we're not dependent on any ceremony or any ritual or any good deed uh, to save us. We don't have to work for our salvation. It's been worked. It's been done. It's been finished by Christ. It's interesting, isn't it? Every religion in the world ultimately says, do this list of things and you'll be saved. However, they define saved. Maybe that is nirvana. Uh, maybe that's eternal life. Uh, maybe that's a, a greater reincarnation or whatever it ends up being. However, they define saved. They say, you got to do something. Uh, you got to be a good person. You've got to undergo a certain level of sacraments or ceremonies, and that's how you get there. Uh, every religion basically teaches that. I remember I went to a Tibetan refugee camp. Uh, I think I may have mentioned this before, but some of you guys may not have heard it. Um, and, you know, Americans, particularly celebrities here in the United States, they want to romanticize the Tibetan Buddhism and all that and say it's this uh, amazing thing, and we've got to learn from all the philosophical side of it. Very different in person. <laughs> uh, it is a dark religion in many ways. But we sat through a sort of a, a, a monastery service. And you know what it reminded me of? Going to Mass. That's it. It was, it was they, they, yeah, they had the shaved heads and they had the, but all it was is just going through the motions, going through the ceremony, and going back to playing basketball, which they did, by the way, outside. Imagine these Buddhist monks, you know, playing basketball and all that kind of stuff. But it was just the same thing you'd find anywhere else. It's just religion. Do this set of things, and you'll be okay. Be a good enough person, and you'll be okay. We're free from that. To know that God loves us because of his initiative, because he's made us our children, and there is no good work that we can do that would save us anyway. Because we'll never be good enough. We'll never be able to rescue ourselves. We're spiritually free in Christ. So we've got to remember that. Hang on to that. You know, when you, when you don't remember something, when you begin to forget it, uh, that's when you begin to sort of get re-engaged into this bondage of slavery. I think that's why Veterans Day is a good thing. 
What is Veterans Day is doing? It's calling us to remember. Remember the sacrifice that was made in order to earn the freedoms that we enjoy every day. Uh, one of the things I did when I was in DC recently is went to see the World War II Memorial. Anyone ever been to see the World War II Memorial? Good, a number of folks, I have a picture of it, yeah. So uh, the World War II, you can see that, you can see right behind it, there's the Lincoln Memorial. If I were to turn around and see the other direction, I would see the Washington Memorial. But again, this is right there in the center of DC, which I think is important because World War II was such a turning point uh, for our nation. Most of our World War II vets are, have passed on, and uh, even from our, our own church. But uh, we'll think about this. What if we lost? What if we lost that war? How, how different would the world be if we lost? I read, I remember, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich by William Shire. I don't know if anyone's read that whole thing. I read it from cover to cover because I knew we had a lot of World War II folks here in our church. So years ago, read it cover to cover. One thing that was clear is that Hitler's plan was to eventually, after taking Europe, come to the United States. That was his plan, eventually to come to the United States. Can you imagine how different the world would be right now? Uh, I wonder, would this building we're sitting in even be here? Would it be torn down or would it have been used for some stamp of approval, state religion that just basically did whatever the regime told it to do? How different the world, how important is this to remember what it took to get us to where we're at? And I would just say the same is true for our spiritual freedom, friends. Remember Christ. Martin Luther, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, not Martin Luther King, both great guys, but Martin Lloyd-Jones used to always say, preach the gospel to yourself. <laughs> Don't just preach it to other people. Preach it to your own soul. Remind yourself what it took to save you. Remind yourself that there's no ceremony or ritual that will redeem you. That Christ loved you before you were even born, before you could do anything good or bad. He's made you his own. Now be thankful. You know, thankfulness is one of the great gifts that God gives us. I mean, because we get to enjoy it all over. When I look at my life, the things I'm most thankful for, I'm thankful for a lot of things, but thankful for my wife, understanding, getting married, big celebration, uh, the birth of my kids, you know, you never forget those days, uh, graduating from school. <laughs> what a day that was, right? And here's the neat thing. When, when you think back, like I remember the day I graduated from seminary, which was a brutally long, hard, arduous time. When I look back and remember that, it, it's almost like I get to celebrate it all over again. So it's not only, did I enjoy, not only did I enjoy it years and years ago, but every time I look back and bring it back to memory, it's like those same feelings come back. Oh man, I can't believe I finished and I was done and it's, it's over. That's one of the, the things about being thankful. Uh, this, they say this and virtually you can see this in, in any psychological, uh, any psychology book, that happy people are grateful people. People who are constantly thinking back about all that is good in their life, who are counting their blessings. Unhappy people are people who are looking at about how life didn't go the way they wanted it to. It, it could have gone this way. It should have gone this way. Uh, if I had done a few things differently, looking back in their life and seeing how people harm them, looking at all of the negative in their life, uh, they're constantly reliving that and, say, and sort of feeling that self-pity about how things could have been better. One of the clearest differences between happy people and unhappy people. Well, as Christians, friends, I said we have a feast of spiritual blessings to enjoy. That's why I wanted to just do this in, in preparation for Thanksgiving. Spend some time thinking about what we have. Uh, spend some time reminding ourselves of the spiritual blessings. We are free in Christ. He set us free. 
And so with verses 7 through 12, be careful of that which would try to take your freedom away. Careful of that which would try to take your freedom away. Verse 7, uh, he sort of compares it to a race. Yeah, he compares it to a journey, an adventure, a walk with Christ, or run with Christ. Verse 7, you were running well. Uh, speaking of the Galatians, who hindered you from obeying the truth? So what's really happening is these Galatians have recently come to hear the gospel. Paul and his other missionary buddies went to the region of Galatia. Galatia is not a city. Philippi is a city. All these other places are cities. Colossae. But this one is actually a whole region. Preached the gospel there, and people came to faith. Straight miracle of God, straight out of paganism, celebrating Christ and rejoicing in, in Jesus. The Holy Spirit is working there, and they're just full of joy, and everything's going great. Paul leaves, and another group comes in and starts saying, that Jesus stuff is good. Hang on to that. Don't lose that. But you got to add some stuff to it. That's, that's not enough. You got to get circumcised and you got to start obeying all the ceremonies of the Torah. Otherwise, you guys aren't really, you aren't really saved. You're not really going to heaven after all. And he's saying, who cut in on you to stop you from obeying the truth? Verse 8, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. Who's him who calls you? God. Not from Christ. Uh, he, he's, this persuasion doesn't come from him. Verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Uh, leaven is a common illustration for false teaching. Right, right? Mitch, it's, it's all over the, the Old Testament, so you eat unleavened bread as a sign of, of purity. Uh, I remember I worked at Papagino's, which interestingly enough is starting to go out of business, or they, they declared bankruptcy recently. And uh, the way we used to make the dough, right? we, would, we would take this huge giant mixer, and we would take a, literally a bag, a big bag, and we would open up a flour and dump the whole thing into it. And then we would take a bucket of water, there's a little marker about how much water you need, and, and you'd pour that entire bucket of water into the mixer. And then we would take a little cup of yeast, just a little cup. That's all you would need, and you'd pour that in, turn the mixer on, and that would make all of the dough. That's his point here. A little bit of yeast is all it takes. All these churches celebrating and rejoicing in Jesus, and you've got a few folks who come in there and have disturbed everything and turned everything upside down and are knocking you off of the race that you're in. Verse 10, I have, have confidence in the Lord. So Paul is not afraid, uh, again, that they've, they've been totally lost. He knows they're going to turn out well in the end of confidence in the Lord, that you'll take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty for whoever he is. He may not even know exactly who these false teachers are that have infiltrated the church. Anybody's trusting that God will eventually judge them. Verse 11, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. What does he mean by that? Well, if you're preaching circumcision, there's nothing controversial about that. I mean, you'd, you'd be a good person. Undergo these certain rituals, and you'll be okay. Every religion says that. The Romans had their own religions and their own ceremonies that you had to go through. And the Jewish faith was well known in the Roman Empire. So the idea of, okay, you want to convert to Judaism, go through these certain rituals and be a good person, nothing controversial. That was, if that was Paul's message... There's nothing earth-shattering about that, and nobody's going to persecute him for that. They'll say, go ahead and do your stuff. It doesn't bother me. But if he's preaching that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but through him, that we are dead in our sins and our trespasses, and it took the death of the Son of God to bear our burden, who rose in triumph over the grave, that through faith in him we could be saved. And no one is saved outside of him. That's a message that gets Paul killed. 
That's a message that led to Jesus to the cross. That's a message that leads Iraqi Christians to their own death as well. Friends, that's the, that's the message that transformed the world. Verse 12 may have kind of surprised you, shocked you. I wish they would, those who unsettle you would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Uh, if, you're, if they want to sort of show how holy and spiritual they are by sort of signs on their own body, uh, show us how really, truly spiritual you are and go ahead and castrate yourself. <laughs> uh, you know, which in some traditions, some extremists have, have gone in that direction. Actually, there was an early church father named Origen um, who to sort of battle lust, he, he, that's what he did, castrated himself. Uh, I'm not recommending that to anyone. <laughs> uh, that's not the way to go. His point is to say, look, if you're going to try to, how good do you have to be? If you're going to depend on your own goodness, you're going to depend on how righteous you are, you're going to depend on your own works, then, then when, is, when, when does that ever end? Uh, if, if circumcision gets you closer to God, then, then go even further than that. Uh, that's his point. Friends, uh, uh, you know, I think the church has gone uh, wrong in one of, of two different ways. Luther put it this way, you can fall off a horse on the left or the right. <laughs> You've got to stay in the middle to stay balanced. And uh, those two ways are legalism or antinomianism. And I know that's a big word, but if you don't know it, it's worth knowing as a Christian. Uh, legalism is when you take the Christian faith and you turn it into a list of do's and don'ts. That's all it is. Actually, it has two definitions. One is that you believe that your do's and don'ts will save you which is what the false teachers were teaching here. The other is when you add things to the law, that you sort of add a whole bunch of other things that aren't in the, the, the Bible, which I think Christians do all the time as well. Um, in fact, I think you know, the idea of no dancing, uh, no card playing, no Disney. I don't know why they want to take Disney away, right? That's adding uh, to, to the law. I've heard it said that you know, Southern Baptists, and we can poke fun at Southern Baptists now because we're part of Southern Baptists here in New England. Uh, but you know the reason why the Southern Baptists are against adultery? They're afraid it might lead to dancing. That's the, that's the joke, right? <laughs> they got it backwards, right? Uh, no, you, you know, the extremists. One, one way we go, we fall off the horse is by legalism, by making the lists of do's and don'ts, everything. The other side is antinomianism, literally anti-law, against the law, saying that the Christian life has no sort of instructions, that there is no real pursuit of holiness, uh, that we don't pursue obedience in the Christian life, which is certainly not true. In fact, in the next section, he talks about the summary of the law, which is to love our neighbor as ourselves. We'll talk about that in just a bit. The gospel takes both of those wrongs and puts us right in the center of the horse. We're saved by grace and made spiritually free in Christ. And now, out of love, we freely seek obedience in Him. That's the gospel. If you fail, you sin, you repent, and you come back and you keep seeking obedience because you love Him, not because you're trying to save yourself. I love this, this illustration, though, of the journey. Uh, you know, you're, you're running and somebody cut in on you. It's so common in Scripture. Uh, I have a picture. We, we went for a, a hike out in Nepal, and um, this was a, in a place called Sarankot, which is out sort of in the boonies. All of Nepal is kind of in the boonies, but this is really out there. And we hiked for a, a few miles, and that guy in the red there is another pastor in town who went with us, Paul Buckley. And uh, one of the funny things about it is we were, uh, it started pouring rain again, but we were uh, giving away candy to, to the, the little Nepali kids come running out and 
they're so happy to see some Westerners and then we give them some candy and, and we keep walking. And I said to Paul, I think we may have just created the legend of, of Santa Claus uh, in Nepal. Uh, you know, the guy, in, the guy in the big red coat who comes around giving away free gifts. So uh, if you hear about, you know, that's spreading. I think we may, have, we may have started it there. But you know, the Christian life is like a hike. It's like a journey. And I don't know where you're at. Maybe you're someone who's not even on the journey yet. <laughs> uh, you haven't even started the Christian life. And you know your own heart and your own soul. Uh, I would just say to you, Jesus says, follow me. That's what he said. I, I, I can't make you a Christian. No one in this room can make you a Christian. You've got to hear Jesus' own calling who says, follow me. Start living for me, trusting in, in, in me for your salvation and follow me wherever I call you to go. Uh, maybe you're new to the Christian faith. Um, that's a good place to be. Uh, you're, you're be. Continue to go deeper in the faith. Continue to mature. Uh, get involved uh, in a small group, a community group. And I just want to tell you, our community groups are outstanding. Um, and I say that completely biased, but, but it's still true. Um, join a community group. We have one almost every day of the week. It's a good place to be, to grow deeper in your faith. Uh, maybe you've been going for a while in the Christian life and, and somebody's cut in on you. Something has happened that's, that's sort of knocked you off the faith. Uh, it's, you've, for a little bit here, fallen from grace. Uh, just know Christ calls you to get back up. Continue going. Uh, don't give up. Uh, the whole of the Christian life is a, a, a battle of, of continuing on in the faith. And maybe you're someone who is nearing the end. And I got, to, as many of you guys know, last Monday, I got to celebrate a finished race for our sister Muriel French. And uh, what a celebration it was. It was a, it was a sad time, uh, a lot of tears, but a recognition that her sorrow and grief and all the hardship she's faced in this life, as well as all the joys and everything that she's experienced, she's finished the race and she's with the Lord. So that's what he's calling these Galatians to do. Don't let someone cut in on you. Finish the race. And then we come to this last part, 13 to 15. Use your freedom to love and serve one another. I love this section. Uh, for you were called to freedom, brothers. But don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So easy to say, well, if I'm free <laughs> spiritually, and I don't have to be, it's not about me being a good person in order to save myself, and there's nothing I can do, and now I can just sin as openly and as widely as I can, right? And there's nothing that, that God will do to take away. He's saying, don't do that. Don't do that. But one, that's, that's not the heart of a believer. Uh, and we're going to look a little bit too. What, what happens when we do that? The sin is a destructive force in our life anyway. But he says, don't use it as an opportunity for the flesh. But what? Through love, serve. Which is the opposite of freedom, right? I mean, when you're in bondage and you're a slave, you have to serve. So you say, I'm free, I don't have to serve anymore. That's what I love about the sort of apparent contradictions of the Christian faith. Now that you're free, serve. Get down and dirty. The first will be last, and the last will be first. The greatest will be the one who is a servant of all. But you do it now freely because you love him. Because you love the people created in his image. Don't use your freedom to, to, for the flesh. Use it to serve one another. Verse 14, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the whole law is summed up in that one phrase. Who's your neighbor? Uh, well, one, your neighbor is literally your neighbor. I mean, it's the person that lives near you. 
Uh, that's certainly the case. And uh, our sister Mary Ellen and Kevin uh, recently found their neighbor dead in their apartment. And one of the things that stands out to me, and we need to pray for them and for the family, but they were a neighbor. Uh, who, who, who would have found her if it wasn't for them actually checking in on her and caring for her? Because it wasn't, in this case, her family that found her. But it was them being a good neighbor to their literal next-door neighbor. But our neighbor is anybody that we come across. Anyone in our lives, in a sense, is our neighbor. Uh, what happens if we do continue to indulge in the flesh? Verse 15, if you bite and devour one another, watch out and you're not consumed by one another. Sin is a destructive force. If you're free, use it to love God and serve Him in obedience. Because if you decide to go and use your freedom for sin, it's not going to do you any good. It's going to do you harm instead. Friends, I love how he uses love for neighbor as the summary, as the summary of the law. I think about it. First of all, if you love God, you'll love your neighbor. Right? That, that, those two go together. Uh, God is our creator. He's made us in his image. We reflect him. Uh, if you say you love God, then you've got to love those he's made. You've got to love those who reflect him as, as little image bearers in this world. Um, if I came up to you and I said to you, those who are parents here, I said, I, I really love you. I don't love your kids. <laughs> you would say, we're kind of a package deal. Uh, you, you really can't take one without the other, right? I, mean, I think I, you'd take it, if somebody said it to me, I would take that as a, an offense. My kids are my little image bearers. I mean, they, they, they reflect the way I've raised them. They reflect my DNA and personality. And not to mention that, I love them more than anything else in this world. If you say you love me and you don't love my kids, then you really don't have much of a relationship with me. In the same sense, if you love God, you will love his people, or at least be growing towards that. But think about this, too. If you love, you'll do no bad. You'll do no harm to somebody else. I mean, that's really the, the you know, the, the longer I'm a Christian, the more I realize that how important love is. That lo- love is the center of the Christian faith. And obviously we say that, we read it in Scripture, but it really is. And if you love your neighbor, you're not going to steal from him or her. If you love your neighbor, you're certainly not going to murder them. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to bear false witness and lie about them. You're not going to covet them for their, their stuff. Uh, so if you love them, you're not going to sin against them. And it's more than that, though. If you love them, you'll actually positively do good to them. Uh, so it's not just, I won't do harm. You know, the old uh, doctor thing, do no harm. It's more than that. I'm going to actively serve. If I love my neighbor, I'm, I'm going to actually help them in their time of need. I'm going to show up when they need to move somewhere or when they need some help around the house or whatever's going on. I'm going to give up my time and my energy to serve them. Uh, If you think about it really, that's the heart of every moral system, any good moral system anyway, in the world. If if everyone just literally just learned to love well, all all the rest is just specifics. (laughs) How do you do that? What do you not do? What do you do? And certainly there are differences, but really this is the summary of the whole thing. Love your neighbor. Friends, let's use our freedom to love. I think the neat thing about this, even a non-Christian, even an unbeliever, understands love to some degree. It stands out. That's why Jesus said, by your love, all men will know that you are my disciples. Uh, If they see genuine love, that stands out like nothing else. I was listening to an interview with... uh, Joe Rogan and Elon Musk, interesting couple of guys. If you don't know who they are, Joe Rogan's uh, 
He's a comedian, but he's also an MMA, MMA guy, and he does this podcast. And Elon Musk is this sort of brilliant scientist guy who wants to get us to Mars and is saying that AI is going to eventually kill us all. So that's Elon Musk. And in this interview, they talk for like an hour or something like that. But at the very end, talking about the future of technology, talking about climate change, talking about artificial intelligence, this is what Elon Musk said. This may sound corny, but love is the answer. And Rogan says, it does sound corny. It sounds corny because we're all scared. You know, we're all scared of trying to love people, being rejected, or someone taking advantage of you because you're trying to be loving. Two non-believers recognizing the importance of love and the centrality of love. My friend, what are you going to do with your freedom now? You don't have to save yourself. You can give that up. Give up that whole pursuit. God's already got you if you're in Christ. doesn't matter what you do. From, from this point to the time you die, you're his. What are you going to do with that freedom? Are you going to use it to do harm, to indulge the flesh, or to love and to serve? It reminds me a little bit, I know it's Veterans Day here, uh, of Lincoln on the Civil War. So the greatest loss of American lives in any war in history. Uh, it's pretty clear that the North was going to win. Uh, they had far superior numbers, superior uh, forces, uh, far superior wealth and resources. What does he do? The second, his second inaugural address, when his, it's his sort of chance here. Um, to either rub it into the South and say, we, got, we beat you, and it's pretty much over. This is what he says, and this is the, his second inaugural address. And actually, I was at the Lincoln Memorial. This is actually written into the wall. It's inscribed into the wall. And uh, this, when I was there, it literally brought me to tears. And, this, and these are for probably familiar words, but just listen to what he's saying. Uh, he's got the victory. He's got the freedom. What does he use it for? He says, with malice toward none. With charity for all, with firmness in the right, now they were anti-slavery, he knew it was the right thing, as God gives us to see the right. Let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. Take that freedom. Use it to love. Use it to serve. God took, well, okay, let me put it this way. From our perspective, God took a risk. God never takes risks. He knows everything. He knows every possible outcome for everything. He decides. He knows the future. He's completely sovereign. But by making us free, <laughs> why did he make us free? Because he genuinely loves us. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. I don't know if you got this quote, Josh. Did you? Okay, this last for Josh. Sometimes I'll, Sunday morning a, a quote hits me and I try to get it to him last second and he gets it in this. But this, this is going to be a little bit hard to explain. But screw tape letters if you've never read it. C.S. Lewis was a Christian. He converted from atheism to Christianity. He wrote a book of what it would be like if one elder demon was speaking to a lesser demon. I know that sounds weird. But his point is to show how the enemy, the, 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 the devil, would try to strategize to destroy our faith and destroy our, our, our lives. And uh, so kind of read between the lines. That's kind of the idea. So this is what Screwtape, he's the older one, says to Wormwood. He says, all his talk, meaning God, the Father, all his talk about love 
must be a disguise for something else. I can't imagine that God is truly and genuinely loving. He must have some real motive for creating them, meaning human beings, and taking so much trouble about them. The reason one comes to talk as if he really had this impossible love is our utter failure to find out that real motive. Why does he actually love human beings? What does he stand to make out of them? This is the insoluble question. We know that he cannot really love. Because that's incomprehensible to them. Nobody can. It doesn't make sense. If we could only find out what he is really up to. <laughs> the answer is God just genuinely really loves us. And wants us to be free. Friends. He calls us to stand firm in the spiritual freedom you have in Christ. He's made you spiritually free. Nothing, no person, no government, no anything can take that away from you. Be careful of that which would try to take it away and enslave you either to legalism or to antinomianism. And use your freedom to love and to serve one another. To close out, one thing that really stood out to me about this freedom. I, was, uh, I got to spend some time at Harvard Business School this week. Uh, because I'm doing this program, and uh, it was pretty amazing. We went in, and it's a group of New England pastors, and we're there to learn and so forth. And they had this incredible seminar. Learned a lot from the seminar. But what really struck out to me is lunch <laughs> afterwards. We went to the cafeteria, and I'm sitting across from this young man, probably in his late 20s or something. His name's Ryan. Looked like Harry Potter, so just to give you a sense. Taller Harry Potter, round glasses, big, you know, sweater, and so forth. And I started a conversation with him, and he said, I've been working for Goldman Sachs in New York for six years. Uh, so, and, you know, and I said, well, how hard is it to get into Harvard Business School? And he had a great humble answer. He said, for me, honestly, because of the support I've gotten from family and friends and the background I have, it, it wasn't as hard as it would be for others. Which I thought was a, kind of a humble answer, right? I obviously came from a very, very wealthy background, he's saying, lots of connections, and here he is working for Goldman Sachs. And I said, what are you doing here? And he said, I left it. Because it was, I, I thought as I was there that I was doing more harm than good in the world. And, and then he said something I thought was really interesting. He said, I can tell you this for certain. These wealthy people are not happy. Again, he's not a, not a Christian kid. They're not happy. So here's someone who has an insight into people who have taken the American dream and have taken all of the freedoms that we enjoy, free markets and all that, and have lived it to the full and are probably among the wealthiest 1% of the world, right? I mean, they are less than that, less than 1% of the world. They use all the freedoms that the world has had to offer. And he says, I can tell you one thing for certain, they are not happy. Because that comes from spiritual freedom in Christ. It comes from gratitude in him for all that he's given us. It comes from life that he promises us for eternity with him. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, thank you so much as we look at another one of your incredible spiritual blessings. Even as we look at the victory that we have in Christ, even as we think of the gift and the blessing of the local church, today we think of freedom. But we are truly grateful for a great nation and for many who have spent much of their lives serving us to maintain the freedoms that we enjoy every single day. 
And again, Lord, we see that this morning as an echo or as a, as a parable of a greater freedom, a freedom that we have in Christ who laid down his life for us so that we could be free in him, a freedom that we will enjoy for all eternity, a freedom from sin, a freedom from a pursuit of self-salvation, a freedom from a constant fear that our salvation will be lost because of something we do, a freedom that we're called to use to love and to serve. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Stand together and close our time.